Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Anyways, um, we're going to jump into our scripture this morning. We have Aaron McCarter from our Maryville Vineyard visiting with us today. He's going to be bringing the sermon, so let's jump into the scripture. It's going to be Psalm 92, verses 1 through 5 and 12 through 15. So in verse 1, it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening accompanied by a 10-stringed instrument and harp and the melody of a lyre. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you have done. O Lord, what great works you do, and how deep are your thoughts. But the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong in the cedars of Lebanon, for they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God. Even in old age, they will still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. They will declare the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Chad. Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, my name's Aaron. I think Chad said that. Uh, welcome to the Vineyard. Super glad you're here. Super glad that I can be Lindsay's vacation plan B. It's an honor. Um, I got uh, quite a bit to cover, so I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. But let's pray. Father, we want to welcome your presence into this room. Holy Spirit, come. Help us to hear and receive from you, Lord, whatever it is that you have for us. Perhaps... It'll be something I say, something we sing, read, or pray together, but whatever it is, Lord, whatever it is that you have for us, man, I hope we don't miss it. So Holy Spirit, come, speak to us, and uh, give us ears to hear. Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, folks, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 92, um, and uh, if you're following along, heads up, I won't actually get to the text until pretty close to the end of the sermon. Uh, a lot of preamble for this one. Um, all right, so here's, here's a thought. The Bible very clearly teaches a process of spiritual maturity. We, we are supposed to grow from one stage of spiritual growth into the next And this is all over scripture. Jesus, of course, talked about this. Um, According to the Apostle Paul, he talked about, if your church gets this, these words will sound familiar to you. Um, Going from milk to meat. I want to give you meat, but you're still on milk because they hadn't yet spiritually matured. Um, And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says we're going to do that until Christ is fully formed in us. That's Galatians chapter 4. 
according to the Apostle John, this is First John chapter 2, he says there are little infants or little children in the kingdom of God. There are young adults and there are spiritual mothers and fathers. Uh, according to Peter, he says we move from faith to morality to godliness. And honestly, on and on and on and on and on and on, we could go with that. We are supposed to be on a spiritual journey toward maturity. Now, uh, being born again is a whole lot like being born the first time. You come out as an infant and then you are expected to not remain an infant. You're expected to grow into maturity and if you don't, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. It's the same thing when we are born again. The trouble is, how are we supposed to know whether or not we're on the right path? So there's a spiritual journey and we're supposed to be on it. There's there's point A and B and C and D and so on. And how are we supposed to know where we're at, whether or not we're on the right trajectory, whether or not we're trending in the right direction? It's hard to know. In fact, like I don't know of any really clear spiritual markers. Like, Like on the interstate, there are mile markers. And you know, I've come this far. I've got this far to go. It's really helpful. I'm not sure that we have a spiritual equivalent to that. Or maybe growing up, um, there was a, like a, a growth chart that you had. So, okay, I'm this tall last year, and I'm this tall this year. And that means I've grown this much in the last year. I'm not sure of a spiritual equivalent of that. Either, Um, I'm not aware that Jesus is handing out report cards every six to nine weeks. It's hard to know where we're at on that journey and whether or not we're on the right path. And this is um, not at all a new question. In fact, this is a very, 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 very old question. As long as people have been on a spiritual journey with Jesus, they have been wondering where they're at on that journey and if they're making progress to that end. And for that, there are lots and lots of models. It's called Christian stage theory. Lots of models to try to help us frame up to answer that question. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to to teach you guys the oldest of these models that I could find. Um, And I actually kind of think it's the best. It's the oldest, but the best. It goes all the way back, and think about this, all the way back to the second century. So to the 100s, this is a very, very old list. And it is called the three ways. All right, see if you're with me. Everybody say the three ways. Very good. The three ways are, listen closely, very important. Awakening, purgation, illumination, union. The three ways are called awakening, purgation, illumination, union. I imagine you have probably a couple of issues with that list. Number one, that's obviously four things. Now, it's a very old list. It's not so old that they didn't know how to count. We will get to that. And the other thing is like, what do any of those words mean? Like, nobody talks like that. What does this mean? So we're going we're gonna to work on that as well. But the first thing I want you to see in um, when the ancient Christians put this list together in the second century, um, when they had uh, step one here. They didn't call it step, step one. This is awakening. Um, and by the way, that refers to salvation, right? It's actually for them, it was very insightful. It was step zero. It was step zero. And that's actually really important for us to hold in our minds because what exactly did you do in order to receive salvation? What exact work did you do in order to accomplish step one? They said, there's no work involved in this at all. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. This is not step one. This is step zero. And it's really, I think, profoundly insightful that they were able to make that distinction at that time. Step Zero. Let me tell you, um, I'm just going to tell you a ridiculous story. I don't know if I should or not, but here's a ridiculous story. Um, when I went to college, 
Uh, first class I went to was like a freshman orientation type, like easy A, freshman, get to know you, you get to know me, orientation class. And on the first day of that class, they assigned a short paper. They said, why don't you, since this is about getting to know each other, why don't you write an autobiography about yourself, three or four pages, and we'll kind of know what you're about and you can bring it in and it'll help us get to know each other. Great. Well, I go home or I go to my dorm room. I'm very excited because it's my first paper and I'm in college now. I'm a big boy with a big brain. Here we go. College. Let's go. And I sit down to write and I think, what is something interesting about about me and where do I want to begin? I thought, well, here's an interesting thing about me. Um, my mom was only in labor with me for 12 minutes. And well, the, the doctor never even got there. And I was like, well, that's the beginning and it's mildly interesting. So I will start there. But here's a big problem. I had a couple of words confused in my mind. I thought birth and conception were synonyms. I thought they meant the same thing. I thought if you were conceived. That was just a fancy way to say that you were born. So I'm in college now and I'm, you know, big brain, big words. So I'm going to use the big words. And so the first sentence of my first collegiate paper was, and I quote directly, I was conceived in a rather torpedo-like fashion in only 12 minutes. That is the first, (laughs) that's a true story. That is a true story. Can you believe, what a, ah. And here's the thing though, just to encourage you. I went on to graduate. How about that? Like proof that you can start at one point and get to another better place. You can turn it around if you get started in the wrong direction. The first sentence of my first college paper. Now here, here in this, I was confused about a couple of things. Number one, I was confused about what those two words meant. And number two, I was confused into thinking that that had anything to do with my story because me being birthed relatively quickly had nothing to do with me. Zero to do with me. All of the credit goes to mom, period, full stop, end of sentence. It all, I cannot like stand atop the mount with my cape flapping in the wind and say, I'm a very motivated child. It was a small canal, but I powered through. Like, it's not part of my story. I did nothing in order to be born. And let me say something I've said already. I'll already repeat myself. Being born again is a lot like being born in the first place. It's unbelievably important, right? It's absolutely crucial. And yet, it has, it's not an accomplishment. And so it's step zero. And then I've, I've updated uh, the other words here. Um, we can look at the other list now. There we go. Um, just to make them, because nobody talks like that. And so I've, I've sort of thrown in a little alliteration and tried to get a list that we could understand a bit better, but the concepts are all the same. So um, there's step zero, which is salvation. Step one is discipline, step two, delight, and step three, depth. Um, We're going to talk mostly about discipline here, and then we'll, toward the end, transition toward the other two. Now, you might remember, uh, as we talk about discipline here, the old school list was called purgation, and when you heard that or saw that, you might have thought of purgatory, but let me just remind you, this is a very, very, very old list. This was about a thousand years before the Catholics even conceived of the notion of purgatory. This is not based on purgatory. This is based on uh, the idea that our old ways, our former ways, before we were in Christ, would be purged out of us or removed from us. And I've renamed this step discipline, Um, because it refers to our being disciplined in both senses of the word. So um, in one sense of the word, we have our spiritual disciplines. Uh, 
So when you step into life with Jesus, you are supposed to reorientate your life around Christ as the center of everything, Christ as Savior, Christ as King and Lord to whom you bow your knee. And so spiritual disciplines are really a way to do that, a way to make sure intentionally, deliberately, that we align our values and our heart to Christ. And so these are things like daily prayer and daily studying of scripture and time spent regularly in worship, both on your own and gathered worship like we're doing now. Generosity, living open-handed lives, uh, recognizing your time, your money, et cetera, aren't really your own because you're not your own. Um, Keeping a Sabbath, rhythms of, of rest and work, fasting, things like this. Ways in which we intentionally align our lives with the truth that Christ is at the center of everything. And I'm, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna be honest with you, um, the last year, about a year and a half, I've just been, I, I wanna say this, I will look back at the last year and a half as a good time, like, hey, that was a good season in my life, I'm great, okay? But while all that's been going on, I have been honestly in a, a sense of mourning and grieving that I really believe to be from the Lord. And that grieving is around the fact that many, many Christians, I dare not say what percentage, I have no clue, but I can say maybe especially in the United States, I don't know, but many, many Christians have actually never taken step one. That there are so many Christians who have taken step zero, somewhere along the way, they got the idea that that was a done deal, you take step zero and that's all there is to it. They've taken step zero and they've never actually taken step one. Now, like I said, there's two senses in which we're using the word discipline here. There's spiritual disciplines, which we've discussed, and the other sense is correction, um, discipline from the Lord. And this is God through our spiritual disciplines. That's how it happens. Through our spiritual disciplines, God reaches in and goes, uh, none of this, more of that, less of this, lots more of that. He sort of adjusts the faders on our spiritual mixing board and says, I have control over your life and I'm gonna remove these things. I'm gonna add these things. Um, And in that process, the sin that we have in our lives gets addressed. Now, um, according to the three ways, they actually break down uh, this first thing, discipline, um, into kind of four levels maybe that are involved in this first step. And so I'm going to go through that list. So this is confusing. It's a list within a list. Okay. So that means you're going to have to focus about where we're at here. But here's a list that is within step one here, and uh, it's actually four things. So um, the first things um, that are in the list uh, where, again, the spiritual sort of, our, our spiritual fathers decided, um, these are the, the, when God addresses the sin in our lives, this is the first place he lands. And they called it, they called it gross sins, um, which doesn't mean, actually, like remember, very old list. It doesn't mean like gross or icky or yuck. Um, it means obvious or blatant sins. And so Jesus and Paul, um, they made lists, Paul made several lists of sins that are basically kind of obvious. And so I'll read you one of them. This is from Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I'm not sure because I haven't seen the show, but I think that basically means anything on Game of Thrones is basically that list, right? So basically what they're saying is the stuff like that, the obvious stuff, the blatant stuff, that's step one, that's the first thing to go. They're just, they're the first things to go. 
Uh, the second on the list is conscious sins. Um, and these are sins that we are aware of, that we're mindfully of, but the truth is they're kind of like socially acceptable and they don't at all align with the heart of Christ, period. Like they just don't. And yet, you know, they, people, you, these, are, these are the type of sins that you could commit and there's a good chance even your Christian friends wouldn't call you out on them, you know? These are things like materialism and gossip and selfishness and ways that we demean one another or exclude one another. Um, and they're not, you know, they, they don't make the news, you know, but they are incongruent with the way of Jesus. They're, 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 they're clearly against the heart of Christ. And then the third thing on the list that they said, that's, this is the third thing that gets addressed after the gross sins, the conscious sins, um, there is the unconscious sins. And this is where this shifts towards some inner work. And unconscious sins are really about, they're really about our motives, the why behind, our reasons for doing the things that we do or don't do. And they're saying that actually gets purged out as well. This is the part where the obvious stuff and even the not so obvious, the outward stuff that all gets wiped away. And the Lord now in step three starts getting to your heart um, and addressing that level. Um, I'm going to stop here looking at these three things just to highlight them. Um, uh, on the very first one, uh, gross sins, we read uh, Galatians 5, and, and there was a list, you know, a big gnarly list. And then one of them was fits of anger. So let's take the idea of anger and see how it sort of lays against these three things. So a fit of anger, that would be a moment of unfettered rage. You fly off the proverbial handle, you lose it, and you lash out in violence or fury or whatever. Let's say, for example, you're angry with your spouse for whatever reason, and you take a big, heavy like hardback bound book and you sling it across the room at your spouse and it goes flying end over end. And then the spine of that book hits your spouse right in the face. That would be a fit of anger. And if that sounds oddly specific, it's because it's a true story. My wife, Sharon, did that to me. That kind hearted woman who was preaching here last week, remember that? She did that to me. Now, the truer version of the story is that she wasn't upset. She thought I was looking and it was a joke. But I promised her on that day that I would never let it live it down. And so I put it in a sermon every couple of years. I just sort of slide it in there. But that would be an example had it been on purpose. You know, details. Had it been on purpose, that would have been an example of a fit of rage. The second one is conscious sins. Um, conscious sins is when you go, look, if I got anger at my spouse, I'd never throw a book. That's crazy. You can get arrested for that, which by the way, you'll be happy to know I, I chose not to press charges in the instance that I, that I gave you before. Um, but that, that's ridiculous. I would never fly off the handle like that, but I would say really cutting things. I, I would say things that would intentionally destabilize his or her understanding of our relationship. I might give them the, the cold shoulder or the silent treatment. I might find lots of little ways to manipulate. That I would do. Now, it's not obvious. You're not going to read about it in the news, but I would do that. And the second level uh, of this uh, process uh, of discipline is when the, those things start to go away. And, and the, third is the third level, unconscious sins, is when you would say, I, I, would, I would never throw a book. That's crazy. I would never overtly undermine my spouse with that, you know, with cutting words or harmful things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, but I probably would hold on to contempt 
and unforgiveness and frustration on no external representation, but I'd hold on to it on the inside. I would hold on to unforgiveness, like continually bringing up the fact that someone threw a book at you for years and years. That was like 15 years ago. I still tell the story. <laughs> but that's when the Lord starts doing the, the inner work. And there's a fourth one as we, well, well before we move on, and I, I want to spend a minute here on this one in particular, because I think a lot of people never actually get to level three. Um, I, lots of people get stuck here. It's a long process to really purge our hearts. I just want to point this out. If you never actually get to level three, then all you ever deal with are external behaviors. It's all just stuff on the outside and not the inside. And if all you ever do is deal with the external stuff, then the best you can possibly ever be is a Pharisee. Do you remember the really cutting things that Jesus said? to the Pharisees, one of them was, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but on the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. So this is really important work. And the fourth um, is, it's not a great word for it, we're gonna have to put a, a finer point on it here, but is trust. <clears throat> and what I and they mean by trust um, is really submitting to the Lord the deep inner postures of your heart. Uh, wherein you, in, in truth, just don't rely on God. You just don't rely on God. And, and this usually pertains to things that are good things, but that we make idols out of. So, for example, let's say your life's just not going the way you want it to be, and you're like, I want to get my life on track, and you start thinking about how you might get your life on track. And so you'd have ideas like, okay, oh, I'm going to start an exercise regimen so I'll feel better, or I'm going to go on a diet and eat more healthy, or, you know, I just really, I'm going to work really, really hard to get this promotion or this new job, or I'm going to go back to school so I can get that new job, or I'm, I'm going to get married, or I'm going to have a child, or some sort of self-help methodology, some strategy for living. I'm going to get super organized, or whatever the case may be, and I want to be very clear, those are all good things based on good values, but they can all be idols if we place our hope and our trust in those things, if they become the answer or the solution in your life, rather than putting your faith and hope in Jesus to be the answer for what ails you. Um, that's the fourth step. And, and that actually, if we can go back to the other list with the zero, one, two, three, um, that's, that's discipline. That's discipline, um, or, or what the ancients called purgation, um, and it's step one. And if that sounds like a whole lot for step one, that could be a little bit discouraging. Um, let me encourage you. Um, these lists overlap a lot. They overlap a lot. So um, in the best case scenario, I want to assure you, you'll never be done with step one. There'll never be a point where you're like, I don't need spiritual disciplines anymore because I've completely surrendered the inner workings of my heart to Jesus in every way. That day's not coming, even in the best case scenario, okay? They overlap a lot. But I'll say this as clearly as I can. Um, the more you work your way through step one, the more you are kind of brought into the beauty of step two. And I want to be very clear. You cannot experience the joy or the delight of step two until you have made serious progress and to the degree in which you have made serious progress in step one. Um, step two is delight. Uh, the ancients called it illumination. I think that's a very good word uh, because it's almost as if there's this whole like massive aspect of life and of the world that you are that is illuminated, that you're able to see that you were not able to see before. And delight, 
is essentially the fruit of step two, or pardon me, of step one, <laughs> which is second on the list. Um, it's the fruit of discipline. And it's, it's, just, it's just what happens. When you have made serious progress in allowing Jesus to form your behavior and form your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit, with that inevitably comes a shift in your worldview and it creates profound delight. We see examples of this all over the scriptures. We're in Psalms right now. One of the common ones you'll see in Psalms, David says this an awful lot, is I delight in the law of the Lord. You ever heard that phrase, church kids? That's a weird thing to say. I delight in the, the rules? That's what he said. I delight in the rules. Yeah. Do you ever hear anybody talking like that? You know what I love? I love the rules. I love how there were boundaries placed on things and I can't always do what I want to do. Man, I love the rules. That's weird. And people don't talk like that. And yet here's David saying, I delight in the rules. What's that about? It's about him having made serious progress in step one. And through that, there's this illumination, this awakening where he goes, you know what? There's absolutely no greater joy than walking closely with Jesus, period. All the best stuff in the world is nothing by comparison to knowing Jesus day in, day out, hour by hour, walking with the Lord. There's nothing better than that. And, and the rules, if that's what I really want the most, the rules are like this cheat code to help me get what I really want. If I really want to walk in step with the Lord, then the law of the Lord tells me how to do that. Therefore, I delight in the rules because there's a shift in ambition because that person actually wants Jesus more than anything else, more than anything. And I know we say that pretty flippantly. Yeah, I want Jesus more than anything else, but this is a true shift where you actually want Jesus more than money or popularity or success or whatever it is. And that gives rise in you to this incredible peace, guys, incredible peace and irrepressible joy because you start to realize something incredible, which is life with Jesus is what I want the most. And then you realize I can just have that. That's just, that's just mine for the taking. And out of that comes incredible delight. Psalm 37, four is a great verse, often misinterpreted. It says this, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. And people read that and go, okay, take delight in the Lord. He'll give me the desires of my heart. That's awesome. I want a Ferrari. I want a smoking hot girlfriend. I want lots of, I want the best career. I, you know, whatever. That is completely <laughs> misinterpreting it. What he's saying is you first take delight in the Lord. And what happens is the things of earth grow strangely dim. If you remember that old hymn, church kids and Sunday school rats, in the light of his glory and grace. And you realize what I want is Jesus, period. That's what, that is the desire of my heart. Through step one, he gives you, he shapes your desires, which is now for him. And then he gives you what you want, which is him. He gives you the desires of your heart. If what you want most, I'm gonna be blunt here. If what you want most in this world is, you could fill in your own blanks, security or power or health or wealth or prosperity or popularity, or fame, or what, I don't know, any of the things that the world tends to say that you should be working toward. If that's actually what you want, I'm trying to think of a way to say this delicately, but I can't, so I'm just gonna say this indelicately. If that's what you want, then you're pretty much just screwed for this entire life. You're just screwed. Because, and here's why, it's really pretty simple. The odds of getting any of those things are very small. 
the odds of getting all of those things, which is what a lot of people are chasing after, they don't want one of those things, they want all of those things, the odds of getting all of those things, almost nil, it's practically zero. And here's just a simple human observation. I'm sure you've made it as well. Um, I mean this sincerely. God in heaven, please have mercy on those poor people who beat those odds and actually get everything that they want. That's the worst. There's a reason, by the way. When you think about the people who just have everything, they've got the world on a string, there's a reason why those are consistently the most jacked up people in the world. The reason why is they got everything they wanted and they're still empty. But if what you actually want is Jesus, if what you want is to live well with him and walk closely with him and trust him in everything, then you can just have it. And the knowledge of that alone is just absolute delight. Step two is delight because what you really want is what you really need and it's all yours for the taking. Now, let me make a little side note. So I'm going to come over here to the side. Well, I'll make my side note. Um, it, it seems like increasingly people are, are deconstructing their faith. I don't know if it's really that common or that much more common or just that we've gotten more familiar with the terminology and we got a word for it. I don't, I don't know. I, but I think it's increasing. People are deconstructing their faith, which is to say they, they stop believing what they had believed before. They walk away from Jesus, the church, from scripture and the teachings of Christ, they are deconstructing. And there's a million societal factors that play into that. I couldn't begin to make the list, but I actually feel pretty strongly about what actually I think is number one on that list is I think people increasingly are feeling like they have been sold a bill of goods. And in many cases, they have been sold a bill of goods. Here's what's happened. Um, somewhere along the way, um, maybe, maybe some preacher told them, uh, you just need to come to the altar and you need to say a prayer. Um, and then you're good. You come to the altar, you say a prayer, you get eternal life, which by the way, that's absolutely true. If that prayer is a genuine work of the spirit and in your life, that's 100% true. I'm not trying to undermine that in the least. But then they also say, not only do you get eternal life and like that's a sweet deal, but also in this life, not just in the sweet by and by, but right here and now, here's what you get. These are things that Jesus promised. You get abundant life. I've come that you may have life and that you might have it to the fullest. You get the peace of Christ and the joy of knowing him and rest for your weary soul. Like it's this incredible deal. Just take step zero and you get all of that. And so people take step zero because I, how do you say no to that? If you believe it at all, you take step zero. That's an incredible deal. And they follow Jesus. And after a few years, they look around after having taken step zero and they go, you know what? I mean, I'm hoping the eternal life thing is legit, but like the part about this life here and now where I have abundant life and peace and joy and rest in all things, I'm not getting that. And I'm in a church and I'm looking around at all the people in the church and I don't think they're getting it either except for these few exceptions. There are all these people. In fact, they're kind of like everybody else. They talk like everybody else. They have the same vices as everybody else. They get divorced at the same rate as everybody else. They're just really not that different. And I don't see really very many people within the church who have this abundant life and joy and peace. And now the seeds of doubt have been sown significantly because they feel like they've been sold a bill of goods and perhaps they have. And the first remotely credible argument they hear against Christianity, they're gonna fall for it hook, line, and sinker because of the confirmation bias that they have because they have been told, take step zero and you get the fruit of step one. And it's not true. 
The peace, the joy of life with Jesus only comes from actually living life with Jesus. Allowing the Lord to discipline and take things away and for you to choose to walk in discipline, to walk in things like prayer and study of God's word and worship throughout the day and fasting, the ways in which living generously and open, these things that we do in order to align ourselves with the heart of Christ. Somewhere along the way, we've told people, you get two without taking one and that's not true. You cannot skip step one and get the fruit of step. Now, step three, <laughs> depth. Um, and, and for this, we're, we're gonna actually look to our text. How about that? Psalm 92. Um, and we're gonna see uh, the first two steps here in Psalm 92. And then we're gonna see a little bit uh, appear into what the, palm, what the psalmist has to say about the promise of step three. So let's look to our text, beginning with verse one. And before, you'll, you'll notice in your Bible at the, at the top, before you start reading this, there's, there's a note from the author. It says, this is a song to be sung on the Sabbath day. All right, this is a good tune for church. First two verses. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning and your faithfulness in the evening. Now this person clearly is in a good mood. They've got delight in their heart. And what I want you to see is that all of what, this is completely anchored in step one, discipline. First of all, it's a song for the Sabbath. So this is a person who is engaged in the life of the church. They're regularly gathering for worship with others and all the things that come from the shared community that you have when people gather as you are doing now. So worship and community are valued. And then also, while he's expressing his delight, he, he expresses joy in the spiritual discipline of devoting time to the Lord every morning and every evening. All right, there's spiritual disciplines in his life. This is a person who is taking step one, clearly. Now, uh, verses four and five. I love this. You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing joy, for joy because of what you have done. Oh Lord, what great works you do and how deep are your thoughts. I the psalmist, I love that this word is in here. He is thrilled by the Lord. He is thrilled, sheer joy. And this is the delight of stage two. This person is overwhelmed with the freedom and the peace and the joy of step two, because he has made serious progress on step one, as we've already seen. And then for stage three, uh, which is depth. Um, one of the things you'll notice here when we read these last few verses is that uh, the psalmist actually stops making personal references and he, start, he has like a self-awareness moment. He's like, we're going to stage three here. I'm not sure I can talk about this personally, but I know some people who are incredible. He calls them the godly. And he goes, let me, let me tell you what these people are like. Uh, it's verse 12 to 15 but the godly, they will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like the cedars of Lebanon. For they are transplanted to the Lord's own house. They flourish in the courts of our God, even in old age. They'll still produce fruit. They will remain vital and green. They will declare the Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. I love this language. I love the language of being transplanted. Think about what they're saying. They're, they're like trees that have been planted in another place. And he goes, they're here. I mean, they're here. These are my friends. I know them. I talk to them. They're here on this earth, but they are actually rooted and grounded in heavenly soil. That's really where they are. They're people of the Lord's house, anchored in heavenly soil. 
And then he gives this picture of them that I want to kind of zero in on. And um, oh, at the, I think I'm done-ish. So if the band or whomever comes up, now, now's the time to do that, um, I think. Uh, here's what he says. And I just want us to hold on to this image. It's a really simple concept, but it's worth reflecting on and applying it to our own lives and seeing what fits. He says, these godly people, um, they're like palm trees. And palm trees are incredible, by the way. I mean, this is all sort of obvious, but they have these incredible root systems um, that allow them to hold strong in the soil, even when the soil is sand, which is quite a feat in and of itself. And the amazing thing is, like, you could see lots of pictures of, like, uh, storm damage where, like, all the buildings are devastated, but then there's all the palm trees standing up, doing fine. And the reason why they're so resilient is because they can bend and flex. And the wind comes, and they don't snap. Instead, they just bend along with it, and they have those big leaves. Those big leaves actually close, like fans close, so they don't provide resistance. And they can bend and sway and flex and move in the wind, and as a result, they stand through the storm. He goes, these godly people, they're like that. They're flexible. They're thoughtful. They listen. They're reasonable. They acknowledge that they're wrong sometimes. They're willing to move and flex and bend. They, they accept that things change and that, that they're not uprooted when something changes. So he says they're like palm trees, but then he also says they're like cedar trees and cedar trees are very different. Cedar trees, again, an incredible root system, really strong, but they are completely unbending. They are rigid. They don't give an inch no matter how strong the winds. So, for example, this is pretty common. Um, Farmers, if they um, have a particularly vulnerable crop, like a plant that's not very hardy, what they'll often do is surround that part of the field or the garden with cedar trees. Because cedar trees are really, really strong. And when the storms come in and the wind blows really, really hard, they are unbending. They will not give an inch. And because they are so rigid and strong, they actually break the force of the wind and protect, therefore, the garden below. And here's what he says about godly people. They're both. They're both. They can bend and flex and sway. They understand change. They know that things move. And yet at the same time, they understand that some things don't change and some things are unmoving. And when they need to be rigid and unbending, unbending, they will not give an inch. They will not compromise. And I think there is a desperate need and it seems to my eyes, and I'm probably, I'm probably a prisoner of the moment, but it seems to me more important now than ever that we need the type of Christians who can bend and flex and move when it's appropriate to do so. And at the same time, to have the wisdom and the discernment and the understanding to know when it's appropriate to stand, to stand strong, to not bend or give an inch. And here's what he says. He goes, I actually know some people like that. Here's the thing. I know a lot of people who can bend at the first gust of wind. I have plenty of them. I know lots of staunch and rigid people who won't bend no matter what in the face of really anything. They're not bending. It gets real rare when you talk about people who can actually do both. 
And I don't think we've ever needed it more. And I'll go back to something that's frankly broken my heart um, for about a year and a half now. As I look around, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I hope I'm wrong. But it seems like we have like a scary high percentage of Christians who are still a step zero. They have, ta- they have stepped into life with Jesus and received the free gift with the, the faith that God gave them, the thing that required nothing. They've received it. And praise God for step zero. Thank God we're lost without step zero. But what we need in order to join God in the renewal of all things is a whole bunch of step three Christians. And they seem pretty rare. So let's have Selah a, a couple minutes to reflect on our own trying to make this as personal as we can. Um, I'm going to get us started in that prayer, and then there'll be a, some, some time for you to pray on your own. I don't know if that's exactly how y'all do it, but that's how I'm doing it. <laughs> King Jesus, uh, thank you for step zero. <laughs> and may we never on any level stop being utterly amazed and profoundly stunned by the grace and mercy you have given to us as undeserving children who have been redeemed by your mercy. We, may we celebrate it now more than ever. The fact that through no work of our own, you have given us life. And Father, I, if there are folks in the room who, if they're really honest, say, you know, I, I'm not sure that I've ever really consistently just taken step one the spiritual disciplines and allowing the Lord to have the authority in my life to add things and take things away or maybe I've done that but it's been a long time I'm not sure I've made a ton of progress in step one Lord would you in your kind and loving way would you challenge us and lead us now to covenant before you that we would pursue these things that we would pursue you and that we would surrender to you and that of course inevitably leads us into delight which in time forms us into these incredibly strong people of depth cedar trees and palm trees and as we hopefully can see how desperately the world needs this may I hope our hearts are saying I want to be that would you, would you help us to not fall for the lie that says that we can skip steps? We can't, get, we can't skip steps. So stir in our hearts, Lord. Challenge us as you see fit and help us, Lord, to surrender to however you may speaking, be speaking to us. I'll give you a couple moments to seek the Lord on your own.